What's going on, thinkers? Welcome back to Thoughts by the VLDI. Of course, I'm your host, the VLDI, ready to bring you another awesome episode. And I know some of y'all are thinking, DeVille, DeVille, what was going on with that last episode? Relax, I'm going to tell you. The last episode was a sneak peek into something new that we have come going on, a new podcast that I'm working on with my brother, who was just recently released from prison. Um, relax, we'll get into all that on the show with him. So last week was just kind of us. And the name of the podcast is going to be the I'm Telling You podcast. We're going to talk about current events. We're going to talk about social media things, stupid things we see on social media, things for the hip hop culture, sports, everything. Just giving you uh, uh, additional perspective to the world that you might not be used to getting. So y'all make sure to stay tuned for that. Probably going to get another episode of that. I'm going to try to get one of those recorded this week and go ahead and get that podcast kicked off. But today, I have a guest with me, a guest that has a story that he wants to get out there to the world because it may be beneficial to someone out there. There could be someone out there listening that may have had some similar circumstances. They can understand this and, and, and can benefit from it. I have Rocky Singh with me today. How you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, DeVille. Thank you for having me on, brother. Hey, I'm glad that you're here, man. Like I said, I had a couple technical difficulties for a second, but we got it up and going and we're here. That's, that's what counts. We're here. So. Tell us a little bit about Rocky Singh. Where are you from? Got it. So, um, yeah, I was I was actually born in the Bronx, New York, um, okay. back in 1986. Uh, since then, I've kind of lived and and enjoyed being all over the world. Um, kind of raised a little bit in the South. You know, it's my family. Kind of, my father went down there at a younger age uh, when I was a younger age and started his practice down there. And um, and yeah, I, I enjoy being around different places in the world. I've I've made you know friends and family all around the world as well. So I kind of like to think of myself a little bit as a world citizen. Nice. And I saw that you, you speak, what, four languages? Yep. I speak uh, Hindi, Punjabi, Spanish, and obviously English as well. Awesome. That's great. I always wish that I spoke more than one language, but I never really had the patience. For a while, I was studying Arabic, and then I kind of just let it go and lost all of it. You know, I can, I'm at the point now where I can hear phrases and pick up on it better than I can actually communicate. And, um, and my daughter, she's 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 weird because she speaks Spanish, but she says she doesn't. She went to a um by a, a, a what is it called a dual language charter school for like the first three years of school, and this yeah. school taught Spanish as a first language. So the kids who came in that weren't from Spanish speaking households had to just pick up on Spanish to do the work, you know, from kindergarten, and um it was pretty awesome. So now she can speak it. But she says she can't. But, you know, when her grandma calls her, um, <laughs> her gra- my, my father married a, uh, a woman from El Salvador. So when the, her grandma calls her and gets on the phone, they'll speak Spanish. But she'll tell you that she can't speak Spanish. <laughs> That's actually really cool. It's actually how I learned Spanish as well. I went to a school program uh, in Mexico where, um, you know, there was no option after three days you were for the first three days, you could speak a little bit of English and uh, enough to like, you know, learn as much Spanish as you could. And after that, you actually got, you know, a pretty hefty consequence if you did speak. And so you had to speak Spanish, had to just pick up as much as you could. So I always tell people, like, when you're learning a language, you know, there's a lot of ways to learn things. And, and traditional education in school wants you to, like, learn the verbs and the adjectives and the, and the conjugations and stuff. Uh, for me, you know, I just learned by, by, by just learning how to kind of get what I needed to get at that time or ask what I needed to ask or, you know, do certain things and then just developed on top of that yeah and that was kind of that was the school's take was that they wanted the kids to learn spanish the same way you would if you were born in a spanish-speaking household we none of us know the language that we speak naturally you know or our origin language naturally we learn it through hearing it and then you know your mind starts to connect those dots and put it together so that was the theory if we if we put this kid in the class and we only speak spanish to the kid they'll pick it up and they did well, it was like the, I believe it was like, you no, know, the pre-K, they started off a little mixture and, you know, kind of cut back the next year. It was a little less. And then the next year it was just full blown 
we speak Spanish. But enough about that. Let's get back into you. How long were you in uh, New York? How long did you live in New York before you made that transition down south? So, yeah, we, we, we moved down at a young age, actually. I think we moved from New York. The Bronx were there for a couple of years. And then from there to Dayton, Ohio, where my little brother and sister were born. And then I think a short time, maybe a year or so after that, uh, the family, my, fa- my father moved the family down to Mississippi, Ocean Springs, Mississippi, a small little uh, little town on the coast, on the Gulf Coast. And um, that's kind of where like, I spent my early, early childhood in, in elementary school before I started, you know, this, uh, this journey of being, you know, sent to different places, different schools and different, different systems. Okay. Okay. So what, what was life like uh, growing up for you in the South? Man, um, so there's, I, I like to say there's two kind of phases of it. One was when I was in Mississippi and, um, I, you know, my father is a, a prominent, you know, owner there and, you know, a physician. So I didn't really have uh, too much like, you know, quote unquote, like negative experiences until uh, he moved us over to Alabama next next door um, where it was a bigger town. And, you know, we didn't know anybody and no one knew him either. Mm-hmm. And, at, you know, at that age is when I started really, you know, realizing and wondering, you know what, I'm not like everybody else. Um, and I'm not, you know, kind of treated as everybody else either, especially when it comes to, to you know, skin tone and, and things like that. And um, it's kind of like a rude awakening all of a sudden. Like I thought I was all comfortable in a shell. And then I got to Alabama and it was like, you know, boom, like you're different and you're obviously different. You look different. And they're telling you. Yeah. I experienced that moving from the South to the Midwest, going from a school that was probably 85 or more percent black to a school that was probably the complete opposite. And like you said, it it, it was like a, it was a culture shock. You have that moment where you realize, wait a minute, I'm different. Before then, I had never thought about the fact that I, about race or that I was black or African-American or however you want to frame it. But th- at that point, when you start to get that different treatment, that's it, it clicks. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm not like everybody else. Exactly. Exactly. I remember even like, even in Mississippi, I remember when I think back, like it was so subtle, but I remember for a large part of my like young life, I was kind of like named almost to be Indian, to be Brown, to like, to like, I remember like even back in Mississippi thinking like, well, I wish I was just, you know, like everyone else next to me because it was mostly, mostly white, mostly white and black. And honestly, in Mississippi at that time, there wasn't too many uh, black. It was mostly all white and I was 10. So I'm curious to, like you spoke of, and as I was reading your bio about being moved around a lot to these different types of facilities, um, what like what kind of led to that? <laughs> so um, I was always, uh, I was always like an outspoken kid. I wasn't exactly the, the quiet kid, you know, um, Definitely uh, was, was really smart. I was highly, you know, gifted in all the, you know, high-level classes. Um, so, you know, the teachers, you know, especially the public school system down there, almost like, and, and not to disrespect them because, you know, a lot of them are amazing teachers. They just, they almost couldn't keep up with me. Um, and I was always, you know, I never really studied. I just uh, still made straight A's. Um, and my parents, you know, are very traditional Indian parents. So me, you know, I don't have anything else to do in the house. My, I'm caught up on schoolwork. I want to be out I in the neighborhood. I want to be walking around. I want to see friends and things like that. Um, so, you know, the more I started doing that, the more my dad really didn't appreciate and like it. And we just started bumping heads, you know, at a, at a young, young age. Um, and that's kind of what started leading up to it. The first time I was sent away, I believe I was 11. And uh, my dad sent me to India uh, to live uh, for, I think, about seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a flat there. I went to school there. Um, you know, it was it was actually uh, uh, India was like looking back like it, I'm very grateful for, for it as well, just because. At such a young age, I got to be in a different culture, be alone, and, and kind of live life there. You know, as an 11-year-old, I, I did definitely, you know, miss my family, miss my friends, miss what I knew. Um, you know, as an adult now, looking back, I, I'm, you know, obviously wouldn't be here if I didn't go through those things. And, and India was like a, a, the first step of, you know, just me learning to live away from home and by, on my own and travel and versus, you know, stay in one school and, and sit at home. Wow. How, how, how different was it for you? Living in uh, India versus living in the States. It was, it was, I remember just, it was totally different. I remember one time, I was a kid, right? So I didn't know how to like clean up after myself and stuff. Like I remember one time I was like, for some reason, looking underneath my bed and there was just like a family of cockroaches underneath there. Um, And then like the AC that I had in the room, like it just, uh, it wouldn't work half the time. And it was 120 degrees summertime. It was hot, you know, it was, uh, it was crazy. The cool part about it is the the school I went to is a public school out there as well. Um, the teachers knew like, Oh, he's an American, you know, like, so the, they have a system out there that used to anyway, where, you know, if you, if you're a kid and, and in class there and you, you joke up your class clown, like you don't just get a punishment, you get slapped in the face pretty hard, like pretty, pretty hard. So, like, but for me, 
you know, there, I was an American kid and I was coming to school there. I got a lot more leeway. Um, you know, I can, the, the, the kids all like, you know, they love me that they, they knew I could kind of talk back and have a little fun in class and, and make it a joke and not really get in trouble. Um, you know, I, I I adapt very well to, to any kind of situation you put me in. I guess it's something natural in me because even at that age, I remember, um, you know, they inviting, being invited, you know, as a seventh grader or sixth grader, I think, to be with upperclassmen and sing like the Indian National Anthem in front of the school, um, you know, to be invited to the basketball games, the cricket games. Um, and, you know, even on top of that, the teachers, like, I guess, like, you know, our American system and our curriculum here is nowhere near as advanced as it out there. I was, I think the kids were at least a good three or four grade levels above me as far as curriculum-wise education goes. So in certain classes, my teachers would just send me around. Um, they would send me, you know, to like on like little uh, scavenger hunts and field trips around the city, like, you know, go learn this about your culture, go learn this about that about India. Um, so that's kind of what I would do. Um, but, you know, it was, it was definitely, definitely like a, a different, different life, different vibe, different everything. Um, you know, I did blend in nicely. However, I remember another story, like my last day there, um, I was riding my bicycle and I think this like guy cut me off on a scooter and I flipped him off and um, I got chased down by his son on a motorcycle and he like <laughs> pushed me down on the ground and kicked me and like basically beat my ass. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, you don't disrespect, you know, elders, period there. Like, and yeah, he saw me like flip him off and he was like, yeah, I'm going to show this kid a lesson. Um, so, you know, like, and, and that's like, it's, there's no, there's no police, like, as you don't get, no one, no one gets in trouble. It's just, you know, I, I disrespected the elder and that's what I got, period. Um, you know, so I, I kind of learned a lot about, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing at a young age there. Yeah. That's, I, that's something that I know I'm probably catch some flight for, but I think that's something we're missing in the States a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yep. that respect for the elders due to all of the, 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 how sensitive, we become the things, I guess, is the politically correct way to say it. Because I know me growing up, I grew up in, I was born in 1980, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s, where in the 80s and 90s in the neighborhood where I lived, um, where I'm from, down in Shelby, North Carolina, that was like, everybody knew everybody. And if you did something wrong, the, the neighbor might whoop your ass before you even made it home. <laughs> and then tell your mom, then your mom will whoop your ass when she gets home, you know what I mean? It was just like, you you was always uh, on your P's and Q's because the whole neighborhood would be involved. And that's, you know, that's Deborah's boy right there. And he's down here acting a fool. I know she didn't raise him like that. And I believe that it made, it, it, it had, it made us grow up with a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of responsibility that a lot of these kids don't have nowadays. Cause a lot of these kids are just out here running wild, doing whatever, saying whatever. And, you know, they feel like they could just talk to adults any way that they feel like it with no consequence. Yeah. And I, and I agree a hundred percent. I think, I think I'm not sure who said it. I think uh, it's a quote. People say that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. And I mean, you, you put the whole community into it. Like, like you, like you were saying, the neighbors and like, then that, you know, goes over your parents afterwards. Like, I think that really does instill a good sense of respect and responsibility towards the group growing up. in. so you get sent over to India. Then so what's your next move back to the States? Yep. So that that became a pattern in my life. Actually, I was uh, sent away for six to seven months, and then back home for four to five months. <laughs> but um, so when I got back to the states, I, they actually transferred me to a different school. So um, I was like, you know, a whole different group of people, different friends, a little bit on a different side of town and stuff. And um, my father taught me to kind of drive at a pretty young age, mm-hmm. and so I started sneaking out his car. I think I was probably twelve around this time. And I would just take his car out and just go to Taco Bell, go to the water, pick up friends, things like that. And um, one night I happened to do that. And um, I was pulled over by the police in Pasigula, Mississippi. And they called my dad because, you know, like I said, it's a small town. They knew him. And, you know, the next day I was supposed to be going to tennis camp. And instead I was on my way to basically one of the one of the worst places I've ever experienced, heard of, or known in my life. And that's part of the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, WWASP. Um, in Ensenada, Mexico, um, and it was a boot camp. Uh, and this is a place where I learned Spanish. It's also a place, uh, four big walls. You know, they tell your parents you're going to be swimming and in the ocean and the beach. Uh, I never once saw the ocean, the beach, or a pool. Uh, but you get there, as soon as your parents you know, get away from you, they pull you in the back, they shave your head, they take your clothes, they say, whatever you think you have, like, we're putting in a room, like, you don't have, you don't get anything here. Um, it's a very regimented, strict program. You have to ask permission to stand up to sit down to speak to use the restroom 
you have to walk in lines. You can't look out of line. Um, you're not allowed to communicate with anybody next to you without permission, without staff around. Um, first 10 days, you're sleeping in a hallway on a mat on the ground. Um, you know, and, and these places are since either closed or had their names changed due to mm-hmm. serious, serious allegations of, you know, child abuse, torture, rape, different things of that nature. Um, and right. in fact, BBC, CNN, a lot of the bigger you know, news outlets have done, you know, smaller documentaries on these guys as well. Just for some reason, whatever the other, um, there's not just too much light that has been shed on it. Um, part of the ownership of those places donated, you know, heavily to presidential campaigns and then lobbied and things like that. Um, so yeah, these, these places, like there's a group of us on Facebook of, of, you know, a few hundred that have since found each other, you know, you know, thanks to technology. And now we, we talk about these things and, um, you know, there's everything ranging from kids that actually, you know, are no longer with us and, and took their own lives to, to had accidents to, um, you know, to doing their best to speak about it. Um, like me, but I mean, not, not really too many people are comfortable talking about um, a lot of this stuff, especially to anything in public. Uh, yeah. For me, I just started recently myself. Um, for me, it's always been kind of like my parents. They, they don't really like me talking about this kind of stuff. They ignore the past, forget it, move on. And I get it. You know, you don't have to, to live in the past, but um, there's definitely a lot we can learn about by you know, talking about it. And for me, that's one of the biggest things is even though leading up to this point, speaking with you, um, it's just healing, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it's very good for the heart and soul to be able to speak about it and get it out versus, you know, have some kind of notion of this stuff that you went through when you were a kid that you don't really talk about or, or act like ever existed. Here I am thinking you were going to tell me that you learned Spanish during your illustrious travels of the world, but you yeah. learned it in a, in a boot camp. Exactly. It was a boot camp. It was a, a boot camp. Yeah. Um, now you can answer this as, as deeply or as lightly as you feel. Um, did you yourself see or experience any of the abuse in the boot camp? Yeah, man. Um, almost every day, mentally, um, physically, sexually, everything. Um, I remember the first time something happened to me. Um, I told you you're not allowed to speak or anything at all. So one day we were watching a documentary, sitting on the ground watching a TV about uh, these ships that kind of came in to one of the harbors in America, like American history. And the date that one of the ships that came in was February 14th. And me, a kid, you know, I was like, oh, it's my birthday. Mm-hmm. And this, I remember like his face, the kid next to me just shook his head and looked down. And what these places do is they kind of make the kids turn on each other. And if you don't tell any of the people next to you, you don't get to leave. So he went and told. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, I was being sent to, to worksheets. It's basically a place where you sit on the edge of a chair, steel chair, the last four inches of it, back straight. And you copy notes listening to audio tapes for four to eight hours, however long it takes you to write a certain amount of pages. Um, and it also takes away points, you know, from you effectively, you know, making it like it's your first day there. Like you're not ever going to leave basically just adding on to your time per se. Um, and the second time I was there, I was sick. I was running a temperature. I was not feeling well. And I was just like crying. You know, I was like, as a kid, I was like, can someone please help me? Like, can I see the nurse? And I remember looking at the, the guard, the father that was in control of worksheets and asking him, and finally he got on the radio and radioed up to admin. And um, I was like, man, finally, I'm going to get taken care of. I'll be okay. And, you know, he radioed to admin. And minutes later, seconds later, maybe, um, I remember having a feeling of, like, complete weightlessness. Um, and what had happened to me was Jason Finlinson, one of the main admin there, had picked me up by my shoulder and threw me, like, and this is, I'm talking about a six-foot-plus, 300-pound club, like, muscle meathead type of guy and throw me into the wall behind the chair. And it was like almost a shock, almost like how I don't even know how I flew this way or what happened. And obviously it hurt a little bit too, but I was more scared or anything at this point. Um, and just started screaming at me and then kicking me down the hallway uh, into a room called Restraint and Restriction, which is the secondary punishment room uh, where if you start getting in trouble on worksheets, you go there. Restraint and Restriction basically consists of laying on your stomach with a guy sitting on top of you, with your ankles and your feet tied behind your back, uh, like cattle almost, uh, with your chin forced to the ground, where you get, you know, your hand released twice a day, I think, to have rice and orange juice, and that's it. Um, you know, as I've been writing my book, I've been trying to think of how long I actually stayed there, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, as a kid, it felt like a week, but it probably was more like a day or two. I just don't remember. Um, you know, when you do finally get to stand up at the end, like, everything your body cramps up like you can feel it just your body cramping and it was like sports muscle cramps like just intense 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 yes so 
I mean, needless to say, at that age, that scared me. That uh, that was enough for me to not ever get sent back there at during that phase of my my program life. You know, um, to to restrain restriction. I got sent back to worksheets a few times, uh, a good few times actually, but not ever to the restraint restraint restriction portion of. It. Yeah, and I mean, that was a uh, kind of haunted me a little bit. You know, all throughout my childhood, and you know, a couple of days later, I still had a fever, and I used to wake up having these really really bad dreams. And, um, I think they sent me back to worksheets because I woke up screaming and I don't remember it, but I guess sleepwalking, we're walking down the hallway and uh, I came to after, you know, Santiago, one of the night shift fathers, um, picked me up and carried me outside. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of like, you know, my this all happened within my first month there at the at the least. How long did you uh, end up being there? This program, I don't believe I was there longer than eight months. Might have been right around seven to eight months. And usually kids spend anywhere from six months to, you know, three to four years there. They say that basically there is no timeline to graduating the quote-unquote program. Once you quote-unquote work the program, then eventually you get to have a seminar with your parents and a phone call with your parents and you start to get to head home. If you don't, you know, make it out and get the right points to make it out of the program, then at 18 years old, you get placed on the border of the U.S. and Mexico with $50 and a bus ticket. Wow. And you get told that your parents will never let you be home again. You're going to be on your own. So you just got to, you know, make life happen after that from that point. And that's, you know, as a kid, you know, as an adult looking back, like, you know, no, nah, my, my parents will never do that. And that's not how it will go down. But as a kid, like, you don't know that. And you believe what's in front of you, you know, like, so yeah. that was, that was my reality at that point in time. I was like, you know, this is what it's going to be. Like, I'm going to have $50 and a bus ticket and have to go make something happen. Yeah, that you definitely hit a nail on the head when you said that as a kid, that's, you know, that was your reality. Um, on a different level, that's what uh, I don't think a lot of people get about the upbringing that a lot of us have is, you know, sometimes you, you get caught into, you know, your box and your reality is your reality. And that's all you see. So that's all you know. So you feel like this is just what it is. And it it, it takes a lot to break yourself up out of that. Um, that's something that I went through myself is, is this, this I've developed a certain mentality because of my environment and it took me a while to pull myself out of that but that's another story for another time because we're talking about rocky here but that just sparked me a little bit when you said that i was like boom he gets it he gets it that was his reality so you go to the boot camp you end up eventually coming home and i'm I'm reading over your biography and i'm seeing some wild stuff in here so at some point did you kind of uh uh turn go down the, uh, the wrong road, per se, behaviorally. Yeah, I mean, before I went here, I mean, I had just been, been back talking and, and not really listening as much. Um, you know, when you go to these places and you get exposed to every, you know, that type of person ranging from, you know, someone who just casually drinks or smokes at that age to, to at that age, literally 13 to 17, you know, full-on, like, you know, gangbangers, people that are in the, in the lifestyle. Um, and I got made fun of when I was there. You know, I was the youngest – and people are like, why are you here? Like, you don't, you've never drank, you've never smoked, never really done anything. Like, what do you, you never even been with a girl? Like, what are you, what are you here for? And um, so when I got out, I was like, you know what? I mean, I'm about to go find out. I'm about to go see some things. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when I got out, I, I, I kind of, um, I got sent to a different school. This is when I actually went to Alabama finally. And it was a, a complete um, good old boy private school called UMS Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was basically like taking a kid out of, a jail or a state school and putting them into the, the most prestigious prep school you can find. And, and just, you know, as a social experiment almost and just seeing what happened. Um, and, and that's what it was. I, I really got into, I joined a, like a, a high school fraternity, started partying. Um, you know, I think, I don't think I had experimented too much with weed. Yet. I think I, I did a couple of times maybe. Um, and I, I'm not sure I was maybe 14, 13, 14, I think freshman in high school at this point. And when I got to that school, actually, my dad had to put me on the, the, the semester, the role or whatever, the, the six months before that. So they had been calling my name out and me being asked every day for six months. So when I got there, everyone already knew my name and already knew like, oh, this is the kid that got, hasn't been in Mexico for stealing or stealing cars or something. Like, there's all kinds of rumors going on around, about me. Um, so like it, it, it kind of hurt in a sense and it kind of helped in a sense as far as like wanting to be part of the cool kids and hang out with people in school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like I told you, that's when I first experienced, you know, racism and everything. I, I remember very clearly like um, the headmaster uh, of the school, the principal, I had a FUBU, a black and red FUBU sweatshirt on one day. Uh, if you remember the brand FUBU. Oh, yeah. So I was walking down the hallway and he turned around and stopped. This is a dude I respected because he's a principal. I was like, you know, 
I want to I want to be in his good good graces, his good eyes. And he turned and looked at me and said, Rocky, uh, why? Why don't you stop dressing like an N-I-G-G-E-R, like mm. my face? And I was just like, you know, back then I barely registered with me, but obviously it's like it's it's been in my heart because I remember it so clearly to this day. Um, and, you know, I think later on in life it started to slowly kind of sink in more like, really? Is that – that's how, like, they're starting to talk to me at, at this age, at this this supposedly prestigious, you know, wonderful school to go to? Um, and, in fact, I, I got kicked out of that school not too much – not too long later for – another kid in the hallway calling me uh, saying uh, N-I-G-G-R, same thing. Like, and I told him, hey, if you say that again, I'll kill you. And obviously I'm a kid. I'm not going to kill the dude. Like, I just said it because I was upset. You know, like, well, like, don't talk to me like that. And, um, yeah, they kicked me out. I think two days later I was uh, I was expelled and um, had to go to, like, this little small one-on-one school in the same town until my father figured out the next move for me to go to. Wow. That – um. Was that do do you feel think that was the was that the most the most racist thing that you experienced during that time period or was there worse? Uh, no, that's just kind of what sticks out, man. I mean, the the subtle stuff when it comes to racism is the worst, especially when you're in a, in a group of kids and friends and like mm-hmm. the subtle stuff of like you know not being invited, not being allowed to do certain things, of, of hearing even worse stuff spoken by other people and knowing that you're getting talked about the same way. Um, that kind of stuff stings a lot deeper than just you know, a couple words or a couple of names being called to you. Uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Like the whole the racist thing is is not just calling someone a name. You know, it's it's a, it's the way you treat them and it's how you treat them differently based on just something as simple as how they look. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad to be able to put your perspective out there because um, as a black man, a lot of times people try to downplay racism like as if it's something that we're making up. Like, no, no, racism isn't a real thing. Nobody's doing this type of stuff. So to hear a non-Black person speaking on their racist experiences, I think that may help somebody out there to understand that this is a, a legit issue that we need to find a way to get over and get past. Not get over in the sense that we need to get over it, but we need to get over the racism. The racists need to get over their racism. And we can all, you know, live as a as, as united as we can be. It's the goal, I would think. But um, yeah, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember not getting invited places when I lived in the Midwest. It was a group of us. It's probably three three guys we hung together: Greg, Josh, and I can't remember the other two guys' name. But I remember them talking about Greg's birthday party, and we're all gonna have we're gonna, gonna Greg's gonna have his party gonna be so great it's gonna be a sleepover yada 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 and then come the weekend of the party i hear nothing now i'm the only black guy in the group these are all white kids little white boys i don't get it get a call and you know everybody when you're a kid and you're doing the birthday thing everybody got to give the one guy your mom's your number and everything so they can contact your mom never hand i asked my mom this whole from friday nothing saturday nothing so coming around monday I'm like, man, what happened to the party? But I don't ask. I'm a kid, so I'm just assuming maybe the party didn't happen. And then when we were at lunch, we were all four of us was together, and one of the guys started talking about the party. And Greg was like, shh, shh, I told you don't say nothing. And I'm like, wow, why didn't you call me for the party? And that hurt. Like I said, I still carry that to this day. That hurt to, for these to be my friends. But I was the only one that didn't get invited to the party. It's like, damn, man, what's why did I not get invited to the party? And then Josh used to invite me, used to try to invite me over to spend the night at his house, but I never was able to go and because something would always come up. And then later on, um, Josh just outright told me that the reason why you can't spend the night in my house is because my granddad lives with us and my granddad doesn't like black people. So I moved and it was crazy. When I moved, me and Josh, we kept in touch. We write letters to each other. And he wrote me a letter one day that was like, oh, man, uh, we went fishing this weekend, this, this, and that. And my grandpa's gone, and my dad said you could have spent the night. And it's like, thinking back on that type of stuff now, it's like, dang, man, that was really, you know, Josh was my homie, you know. That's the kind of stuff that hits you in the heart that that, uh, that you don't really forget. That, that I think that's the deeper part of what it feels like to have, you know, those kind of experiences put on you, basically. And I mean, I, I've, most of my life, most of my friends have always been black. So I even, even me, like having a black friend, like I would get so much 
like I, this, my dad used to have pay this guy to follow me around in Mississippi Whoa. and like see where I was going and what I was doing. And he would always try to bring me to his house and show me and tell me like, Hey Rock, you know, a revolution is coming one day and you're going to have to pick a side. Like, you know, you don't hang out with that kid, Kevin. Like, like he's don't hang out with those black guys, Rocky. I'm telling you, they're going to they're gonna do they're gonna this and that, this and that. And I mean, that was my best friend. So I was like, I don't know, like get like, like stop it. You know, I used to hate, hate it, hate it. Um, but, you know, even other people, like, would just not want to be around me because I had friends that were black. And the way they talk about, it, like, you know, people behind their back, I'm like, I know you guys are talking about me the same way as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, I saw a quote the other day that said, um, and I don't, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody. I'm just reading the quote. The quote said, a lot of black people now are realizing that their white friends never liked black people. They just liked them, okay. you know. It's like you were the exception. And now with all the things that are going on, it's coming, you know, you're having these differences of opinion and you're hearing things and seeing things to let you know how the people really felt about your people, you know, and you were just the one that they like. You were the good one, quote unquote, as they say in the good old South, you're the good one. Yep. <laughs> but, um, and I've recently ran into a lot of that, but let's dig back into your story. I keep getting off track, but I'm loving this conversation. At what point, I'm interested in, at what point, because I'm trying to build it up. At what point and what happened? With, how did you end up with the felony? Oh, that's fast forward about about five, six years. So after Mexico and after the school I kicked out of, I was sent to military school. Um, from military school, I was sent to a Catholic boarding school. From Catholic boarding school, I was sent back to the same program in a different facility. And that's where I finally graduated at 17 early. Once I went through all those, and I mean, each, I can, I can just dive into each school, how like the craziness and all the stuff that I experienced there. Um, but to fast forward a little bit, like after going through those patterns and, and living like that for my entire 11 to 17, by the time I was out and graduated high school early and got in college at 17, I was ready to let loose, like let loose. Like you couldn't tell me anything mm -hmm. at all, period. I was, um, I think about before I moved to that new school, the military school, I started realizing in Mississippi, um, there was weed there, marijuana there, uh, for like five bucks for the same thing that they were paying 50 for it in my private school in Alabama with all the people I knew there. So I was like, oh, you know, I got free rides back and forth from two towns because my parents go. So I started bringing that, started like learning how to make really, really easy money and being able to do what I wanted to do with it. So by the time I got to, you know, the University of South Alabama, um, you know, when I was 17, I was just in it like 100% I was trying to figure out more ways to to sell to do it to make money to party like women everything everything and I, I just kept going down that path I was a freshman in college for seven years almost because I had great grades a 3.8 I graduated with but I would just drop classes I was you know I was partying and doing different things the felon came felony came I was convicted in 2009 I believe arrested in 2007 um, and it came from the distribution of controlled substances charge you know, kind of like at the end of my quote unquote drug career, basically, um, where I was uh, set up by undercover cops and in, in between the feds and the state working together in Alabama uh, for undercover sale operation and sentenced to, um, you know, my, my jail time and prison time. For you to get set up by the feds, you must have been really doing something out there. I really wasn't. I really, really wasn't. It just looked like I was. Mm. Basically, my parents, you know, had a little bit of money and I would party every weekend. So I would take both their cars. Uh, my dad, they both had Mercedes and I would take them downtown, which is like not many people down there. People would see me with just money and cash and nice cars and, you know, dress nice. And the the feds, like, so it's like a, it was a joint operational task force between, it's called Maxan, I think like that, something like that. It was uh, between the feds, the state and the county government. And um, they just started to hear my name. I was just more known than anything. I was kind of that, that guy that knew all the people that had it and knew all the people that wanted it and would just kind of put it together. Okay. And um, you know, had big parties at my house and stuff like that. So I mean, I was I was definitely you know doing my thing. I just wasn't any kind of like kingpin level or status or anything yeah. like that. You know, it just I get it now. How you're saying it? It the you looked louder than what you were doing. You exactly. know, you pulling up in Mercedes, you dressing, you probably living in a, a great house. You know, exactly. I get it. I get it. So now I, I know that you're you're writing a book. So I don't want to give away. The whole story, that's why I kind of did a little skip. Um, but um, what I, what I was building to, because a lot of people that I know look at a felony like it's the end of the world. You get a felony, you're, you're the worst ever. 
You're garbage. You're trash. Nobody should ever deal with you. So that's why I wanted to build up to where is Rocky at now in life. So yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel that I feel that really, really deeply. Actually, now, I mean, I run a successful um, business, you know, in in Beverly Hills, Los Angeles. I recently moved there too. I work for myself. I create my own schedule. I create my own life. I work hard. I do work hard. Um, I do everything by the book. Um, but you know, I, I have the success and lifestyle to be able to do what I want to do and live how I want to live now. And um, I, I mean, I overcame that. I did, honestly, I was one of those people that was like that, that believe what you just said through and through to my core. I'm a felon. This is what it is. I can't ever do anything else. It's my identity. It's who I am. It's who I'm always going to be. And um, let me just rock with that and keep going down that same road. And I mean, it took, you know, a lot, a lot of work. And I'm talking about only recently have I, you know, got to, to come to enjoy some some form of success and, and some form of really totally like being like so far disconnected from my past now. Um, and that's why I'm actually, you know, talking about and revisiting now, like, you know, like what are the steps to, to take to get there? Because I have a lot, most of my friends from back home, like, they're still, you know, going through the same type of lifestyle. Yeah. I know how hard it is. Like when you have, when that's your identity, when that's who you are, when, when you go back to the streets or to the block or to the, to the city that you're from and like the people expect you and know you to be a dope boy, a party animal, a playboy, whatever it is, like, it's so hard from that, whatever it is, you know what I mean? To, to disengage from that identity that, that, you know, not only you create for yourself, but society eventually labels you and places on you as well. Um, but on the same token, that's also one of the most powerful things you can do with your life, in my opinion. I get it, because, like I said, I have a, a brother who just came home. I'm talking about yeah. maybe he's been home a month. And, um, yeah, we were some wild boys in the day, just <laughs> just to, to, to not get too deep into it. I put it like this. This was early 2000s. People used to call me 50 Cent. Okay. okay. Because, of, of, of you know, 50 Cent came around around 2002. And yeah. people started calling me look fifty. They go fifty. They go fifty. Just gives you an idea of the type of things I was into. Yep, on it, it loud and clear. I hear you. Yeah. So I get that, man. But and that's why I wanted to make sure that we built up to from where you were to where you are now, because I feel like that could be inspiring to some people out there. Uh, a lot of these young men and young women need to hear that, to know and understand that just because you've made mistakes, it's not the end of the world for you. It's definitely not the end of the world. I know someone now who was uh, went to prison for robbery. He was right out here robbing banks. And now he's um, running, not going to mention what comes, but he's running like a national company, all because someone took the initiative to give him a shot after he came home. I have another friend who came home probably 10 years ago from, you know, some things that he did around four years for a violent charge, but Someone gave him a shot because he, he came home. He went to school, finished college. He just showed everybody that he was not selling for that lifestyle anymore. And then, boom, now he's, you know, doing what he's doing. It's not, listen, people, it's not the end of the world. You strip up. You make some mistakes. You got to pay your debts to society. And then after that, move on. You do not have to get stuck in that lifestyle. You know, it, it gets to a certain point, And I want to ask you, Rocky, if you agree with this. It gets to a certain point where, like I say, you can you can grow up in an environment and that's all you know. But I feel like it gets to a certain point where now you're you're actually making a choice to live that lifestyle. You think you agree with that or how you feel about that? Man, a hundred percent. And and like you were saying before, you know, it's definitely not the end of the world. If you want to say something is the end of the world, quote unquote, is the choice you make to stay in that same lifestyle state, thinking the same way, keeping yourself surrounded by the same things that kind of wound you up in the positions that you're in that you probably don't want to be in if you really slow down and search within yourself. Um, for me, it was literally disengaging from everyone, everything, every my, I, mindset, ideal, bit of music, everything that I was doing at that time and stepping back, you know, um, to really kind of like find yourself again. And, um, you know, I, I my choice kind of for me came in, in 2012 when I had a choice to to leave. You know, I had, a, I had a girlfriend at the time. I was set in my community. I was out of prison mm-hmm. and getting back in the same lifestyle, doing the same things again. And, um, you know, I like to say it was kind of like almost like a spirit or energy came. But, mm-hmm. you know, I made that choice. I said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to go. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who I'm going to be. I don't know who I'm going to have left at the end of it, you know, but I don't want this. Anymore. And um, and that's it. I think I think once you make that decision that choice you put that in your heart and you and you and you move beyond that um the world will start the universe will start opening its doors to you 
and you know, from from that time, it's we're in what twenty twenty now. That was eight years ago. Um, I had plenty of backward steps. I had plenty of issues. I had plenty of stuff go wrong. Um, but I made the decision, like, you know, I'm not selling anymore. That that lifestyle of selling and and of literally just waking up to party and go to sleep. That's not who I'm going to be anymore. And I didn't even know if I could actually beat it. I wasn't even sure if anyone would actually start to ever see me in a different light. Um, but I started seeing me in a different light. And I started seeing that there is definitely something more than this, that life has more to offer. There's more I can do and there's more I can give, um, you know, like this. And, and like I said, a tough journey, long journey, but, you know, implementing a few small things after that mindset change. Um, and I was able, you know, a short time later to, to get to where I am now. Yeah. And a lot of people don't get that when you live that lifestyle, especially to, from the aspect of selling drugs and things like that, most people only get like a, ho- a hot four or five year run at the best uh-huh. before you're locked up. I've uh-huh. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen guys come out, you know, they, they start, you know, the money starts coming in, they balling, they got the car, they got the jewelry. Next year they're locked up. Might do a couple months that first time, maybe a year or so, come home start back up, may get another hot two, three-year run, now you're locked up again. That's, that's kind of what happened with my people was it was just a whole bunch of small things, a whole bunch of small things until it got to the point where it was just like he finally got into a situation where he, it's just like you're not coming home, you know, you're not, you're not coming home. And everybody, it was like a shock to everybody because we was used to seeing him doing what he was doing and, like I say, probation. Then, you know, a couple years go by, maybe a couple months, month or two, more probation. But once it, that door hit, slammed shut on them, and they was like, no, you're not, you're not coming home this time. There's no, you know, there's no getting you out today. There's no getting you out tomorrow. We're keeping you till you go to court, and you're not coming home. That was, like, devastating to everybody because people don't realize that when, when you get incarcerated – the people that are really close to you, the people that are really down for you, they do that time with you because now you're gone. You are a part of their life that is missing now. And now we have to deal with you being away. We have to make sure that you got money. We got to make sure people get down there to visit you, you know, emails, uh, letters, look, go check on your kids, make sure your wife is all right, make sure things are getting handled for you on the outside and the inside. So your people go through that time with you you know definitely definitely yeah i mean unfortunately that's that's the way our system is is almost built you know in the justice system in america like they'll they'll lock you up for a little bit of time put you in the system put you on papers and if you don't you know make a a full you know 180 and decide just get don't even like don't even give them a chance to touch you again after that when they get you when they get you properly um they're gonna have every bit of the law behind them to make sure they can keep you for as long as they want to oh yeah and then and then a lot of times you come home and you're still on certain restrictions. You know, you, you got to report to somebody. Yeah. You got to get tested. You got to tell them where you're working. You got to tell them where you live. You can't even freaking go to the beach for the weekend without getting permission to go to the beach for the weekend. or they, It'll violate you, send you right back in on the inside. Exactly. I had an electronic uh, monitoring anklet for 22 months, 11 months, two different times. So that's a, it's a whole other type of uh, – prison almost quote-unquote experience in itself so how long were you actually uh did you were you incarcerated or was it one of those you you got caught up and bonded out and type of thing so i got caught well, i got when i first got locked up i did i did maybe a couple months at a time in jail um until finally i just i wouldn't i wasn't convicted yet so i wasn't i wasn't about to listen i told you i was real hard-headed yeah. <laughs> so i failed 16 piss tests and then wow. I went to Mexico randomly while I was on probation still. Um, and finally, the judge kind of said, you know, enough is enough. Um, you have this 10-year split to serve three sentence, you know, which is a mandatory three on the front end. And he enforced it and um, sent me to prison. So I did, um, you know, about a year total in jail, different months at a time, about nine months to a year in, in inpatient rehab facilities, 22 months on electronic monitoring, as well as just under three years, about two and a half years in prison as well, up the road in prison, Alabama State. Um, you know, and then again, probation after that again. Um, so they took nine years, a nice little nine years of my time. You know what I mean, and like I said, I was hard-headed. So even a lot of times people don't even feel like I was locked up or in there because like at the times when I was home and on house arrest, I would just have ridiculously 
crazy big parties in my house and invite everybody over, which my PO hated. But at the same time, he was like, well, if he's not smoking weed, if he's clean, then there's nothing I can say type of thing to him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they heard about it and they didn't definitely didn't like it. But, but yeah, nine years uh, off and on with everything from probation, electronic monitoring, house arrest, uh, prison and jail. How did, I'm wondering, your parents, being of, of your culture, and from what I from what I've heard from people is that it's it's kind of a strict culture. How did they react to you once you got into this trouble? Was it like a we don't deal with him anymore type of thing, or were they supportive? Well, I mean, so I've been institutionalized, like I was telling the story since I was eleven anyway, and mm-hmm. they kind of were like what I was doing. They were expecting something to happen to me anyway. Um, they definitely were supportive. You know, what I mean, like they didn't just. They didn't just kind of toss me away. My dad would come visit me. Um, you know, my mom came a couple times. My brother and sister came a couple times as well. Um, but they were definitely ashamed. They definitely were hurt. They were definitely really, really torn up about it. My mom, I remember when the judge finally said, Mr. Candola, you just want to be the life of the party. And that's not the case in our society. Ten years and he banged his gavel down. I remember all I heard like behind me was like, my, my ears are ringing. I could still hear my mom crying, you know, behind me. And, they didn't let her, you know, come come up to me. I mean, that's the case any any mom sees, you know, their son going away like that. And you know what you were saying before about Indian being strict, it's, it is. Um, I don't remember them even telling. Even when I was younger, they wouldn't tell, you know, the rest of our family, our cousins, and who everyone else what was happening to Rocky. And um, I don't think they really told any of my other family as well that I was in prison. So much so that when I finally started, you know, maybe ten years ago at the most going to meet my family and my cousins, they were just, they didn't know. They just had random assumptions and stories about me. Like, we didn't, like, you know, we heard you're, like, a bad kid. Like, we don't know what happened. We know that every time we bring your name up, your dad gets pissed and doesn't want to talk about it. So, like, you know, tell us what happened. You know, like, what, what did you, who did you kill? Like, you know, what, what what's going on? Like, yeah. So, it was, uh, and that's one of the coldest moments right there when you get that, that sentence and you, oh, turn, yeah. you turn around and look back at your people. Oh, that's man. one of the coldest moments ever. I can't forget that ever. But um, now, your, your book. How far along are you with your book? Man, I'm still 12 years old in the book, man. <laughs> and I've been writing it for a better part of a year now. It's, it's, it's pretty emotionally taxing. I'm kind of getting deep into some of the, the details of the, the crazy childhood trauma and abuse and stuff like that from, from the schools. And I really want to take my time getting into it. And I originally started writing it, you know, for myself more than to share it. And eventually, as it was going, I was like, you know what, maybe this... Maybe this would be a powerful thing to, to share and, and, and talk to other people about. So I've tried to now kind of been like, you know, trying to put, you know, daily time into it. Um, kind of got 12. After I turned 12, you know, there's a lot of horrible stuff that happened until 17. But the part before 12 and 13 was kind of the hardest stuff for me to write about. Mm-hmm. But I've kind of got, got through that. I think I'm about, I write really small and I write left to right on the whole page. And I'm about 30 pages in right now. So you're so handwriting. Got, exactly. I'm handwriting it. Then I send it to a lady who... Uh, transcribes it and puts it on digital form for me. Yeah, I think that probably that probably adds to the intensity of it. That just that a lot of people don't get the that physicalness of that paper, that pen to paper, and actually writing it out yourself. That kind of gives you a connection to what you're writing. Or maybe I'm just a hippie. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. I actually like I make notes on the side of it. Recently, somebody told me that, you know, hey, why don't you like maybe put some poetry on the other side of it too? And I've kind of like wrote in some like rhymes on the left-hand side of the other pages and, and things like that. And it's all, I feel like it's all kind of part of a process, you know, a process and specifically my process right now. Um, but it's very, it is powerful. It's, it's tough. Like I was writing a lot of it on quarantine and during this whole COVID thing and it was just alone sitting at home and just I wouldn't even know, like, all of a sudden I'd look at the paper and it'd be, like, wet on the paper from, like, just, you know, tears. Like, it's yeah. powerful. Are you finding it kind of therapeutic to get that out? Definitely. I've never, I mean, so much stuff happened in my adult life. I mean, everything from the almost, you know, losing my life to, to prison to relationships to all kind of other stuff that I feel like I kind of pushed away and, like, somewhere deep in my heart, a lot of the stuff that happened at the, the very young age. Um, so facing it, looking at it, I actually asked my dad to send me all my journals from that age as well. Um, and I was been reading those journals and kind of going back into them and just, it's definitely been therapeutic. It's uh, it's almost a shock to look back and see like, was this really a 12 year old kid, 11 year old kid writing these words on this paper right now? Like, it doesn't seem like one. It seems like a, a grown man, you know what I mean? I definitely didn't think of myself as a grown man at that age, but looking at the, those journals now, it's uh, it's tough and it's also 
it also kind of shows me like, you know, where I've been and where, I, where I'm coming to and, and how far I have actually came. Cause I don't, a lot of times I think, especially as entrepreneurs, like we don't really give ourselves too much credit. You know what I mean? We kind of always like trying to push it, push it, push it, do more, do better. Mm-hmm. And then slowing down and looking back um, really does put things in perspective. Um, so besides your book, I was wondering if, or do you have any other projects going on that you want to let the people know about? Um, yeah. So I really want to, speak um whenever you know the whole covid thing ends i really i really want to be able to like just travel places and land and have a, a speaking engagement set up to where i can go directly talk to the youth or you know even people in prison or getting out of prison or going in prison um and and really kind of uplift motivate inspire and energize them you know with with my experiences and show them that you know hey guys like if, if i can do it I'm, i know for a fact you can well as well and um i definitely have a few bits of experience and tips that you know to share with you that you know might help you get out of any kind of unstuck position that you're in that you don't want to be in and um you know i'm I'm just just like i told you just getting into speaking more and more like you know on on podcasts and radio shows with people um so it's kind of like i'm almost in the beginning of this new journey again and this is all from the heart like you know like i my business is going very well i'm happy with it i love doing what i do um but this really fills my heart up so you know i mean just get ready to see and hear more of me all my stuff is very public. My name, my phone number, everything is out there as public record. I'm very, I'm, I like to say I'm one of the easiest people to reach in America. <laughs> so, you know, if anything I do say or, or do resonates with you or, or you relate to it, um, you know, call me, reach out to me. Let's talk about it or just, you know, I'll listen to you. Awesome. All right. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with me today. So, I don't want to take up your whole day, <laughs> but I definitely appreciate it, man. We got to get you back in here and talk to us again. I definitely hope we can do that. A hundred percent, brother. I'll be more than honored to. All right, man. Thank you. And to the listeners, as always, I love and appreciate each and every last one of y'all for tuning in and listening to my show. Make sure you follow me over at D-V-I-L-L-E underscore D-I on Instagram and Twitter. A little bit more uh, active on Instagram than I am on Twitter. And go over and like that Thoughts by DeVille DI Facebook page. You can find links to all of my episodes right there on that page. And stay tuned for the I'm Telling You podcast. New episode, hopefully this week. And um, we out of here, man. Y'all have a great day.